we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. We're up to episode 86 of the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. It's the 8th of March, 2017, and with me is making an appearance for the first time in a long time, the 12th man, Paul. G'day, Trevor. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for coming along to podcast Uh, headquarters. Always a pleasure. (laughs) So we've got um, a couple of, well, three fantastic articles to talk about a little bit later. But before we get into those, which are quite meaty, just a few sort of um, things that I've come across that I'm just going to throw at you without warning, questions without notice wow. type of situation. Okay. Um, stumbled across this one this afternoon, Paul. This is um, uh, for people with blogs who post articles, a, a plug-in on the blog whereby people cannot comment on the article without first completing a quiz of three questions, which would mean that they've actually had to read the article before commenting. Oh, really? Is that the objective? This is this new piece of software that somebody Mm. has developed. And what do you think of that, Trevor? Well, I think it's a fantastic idea, and I'd love to see it developed for Facebook. Yes, indeed. Because you are one of the admins on the Mm -hmm. Secular Party Facebook page, and we both know that... If you post a, a 12-word meme, it'll get read. But if you post a 2,000-word scholarly essay, that could be fantastic. Mm. It probably won't be. And quite often, you suspect, suspect people are reading things, well, are commenting without reading. I'm sure a lot do, mm. yeah. Or, or they may just read the first few paragraphs and yes. just sort of say, oh, it's too long. And I, I think I know what it's about anyway, so here's my two cents worth. Yes. So... Anyway, I reckon if a piece of software was developed so that on your Facebook page you could force people to undertake a quiz before commenting on an article, that would be a popular one as far as I'm concerned. So, okay. So, full marks to NRK Group who are working on that. We, Paul, have previously talked about uh, general stores in the outback oh, discriminating yes. against people. Came across an article. Did you know that pharmacies in the UK, certain members are wanting to be able to refuse to supply contraceptives on religious grounds? Yeah, that's a sticky one, isn't it? (laughs) Potentially very sticky, yes. You okay with that? Uh, No, I'm not okay with it. Right. Um, But as I said, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you know, if you don't, get what you want at a certain business, you take your business elsewhere. Mm. I mean, you know, why? I mean, I think they're crazy not to sell contraceptives because there'd be a, a bit of money in it. Mm. But, yeah, I, I see your point. Um, it's a little bit different to what we were talking about it, it in is. terms of discriminate, refusing to serve on the basis of someone's physical appearance, as in ethnicity, race, etc. Yes, um, gee, I don't know. I, you know, if it was me and I went into the pharmacy and said, I want to buy a packet of condoms, extra large, please. And they said, sorry. <laughs> You're joking. Sorry. <laughs> no, I am joking. 
But a friend of mine did that once in Japan just to, to, to toy with the pharmacist. Right. Because he was an American in yes. Japan and there's this perception that foreigners have yes. larger penises. So he, he deliberately went into a pharmacy and said, you know, uh, I'd like to buy some condoms, please, uh, but I need the extra large size. And the pharmacist, the male pharmacist, came out and said, with a very angry face, there's only one size. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway... Uh, the, what, yeah, look, you know, uh, I think people in business are entitled to uh, make choices as to what products they stock. I don't think, again, I would impose a legal sanction against people refusing to stock certain products, you know. See, we provide pharmacies with a lot of business advantages as a community. It's true. We, we educate the pharmacists yep. in our universities. Yep. Sure, they might pay a fee, but we provide an institution. Yeah. We regulate them and say, well, there's already a pharmacy in this area. You can't have another pharmacy. We have prescribed medicines and a system of payment. That's right, which they profit from and, massively. And, and we say that other businesses cannot sell these drugs and these medicines. Only pharmacies can. So we give you, as a category, a, a monopoly. Huge so, business advantage. For those reasons alone, we can say to pharmacies, in return for all of those advantages, you have to toe the line on certain things. So it just goes to show that that's the UK. And I mean, we hear about these stories in America with crazy Americans. And um, as I've said before, if something happens in the UK, I always think it's possible it can happen here in Australia. And that's happening in the UK at the moment. That's a tough one, Trevor. And I have to Mm. say, um, I'm probably... On your side on this one. Oh, okay. I've swayed you on one. Good. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if legal sanction is the way to go, but certainly there, there could be something tied to the licensing. Yeah, just, or, you know, you don't have to. You just don't get a pharmacy yeah, license if you don't Something do like it. that, That's, yeah. yeah. Uh, Pauline Hanson, Paul, she thinks Vladimir Putin is a great uh, guy, despite... Killing 31 Australians or 38 Australians in that aeroplane incident. And not to mention probably hundreds of his own country people. (laughs) Yes. In nefarious ways. Yes. So, and she believes that um, vaccinations should be optional and she encourages people to do their own research. Yeah. Look, uh, we all know Pauline Hanson is not a very well-educated person and, you know, her her thinking skills are not very good, let's face it. Hmm. So, look, it's unfortunate that she's the leader of a political party that's uh, increasing in influence in this country. Um, But then you look at the rabble that she gathers around her and uh, you don't see any really suitable replacements for her as leader either, do you? So it seems to me people are, um, what would you say, they follow her because probably of a lack of other good options it would appear that people are abandoning the major parties Mm. and they haven't heard of the secular party. Mm. So they don't have anywhere better to go than Pauline Hanson, you know, Mm. but yeah, obviously she says some really dumb things and that's another one. Hopefully she'll lose a few voters over that. Let's hope. But Donald Trump has provided the template that you can say some crazy things and get away with it. So it'll be interesting to see whether those, Two things Indeed. cost her votes. Um, Roe versus Wade, you would be familiar with that as the American test case for abortion yeah. law. 
which basically came down and said uh, that uh, abortions could be offered. Uh, the Jane Roe in that case, who was really Norma McCorvey, she died on the 18th of February, age 69. Interesting fun fact, Paul, that 25 years after that legal case, she converted to Christianity and was a pro-life activist for the rest of her life. That is interesting, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. There you go, dear listener. Just a little fun fact for you. And um, a quick quiz for you, Paul. And I know I've got you on this one already because it's a sporting question. Oh, Go ahead. Ky- Kyrie Irving, famous for two things. Never heard of her. No, it's a guy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. The first thing he's famous for, he's an NBA basketballer. Uh-huh. Second thing, he believes the earth is flat. No, yes, on. no, this is dead serious. He has an NBA? No, he is an NBA. Oh, NBA. National NBA. Basketball Association basketballer. Uh, so he is a very, very well-known professional basketballer. And he was interviewed in some situation and he said that the earth is flat. It's obvious and that it's a complete conspiracy this whole notion they're lying to us when they tell us that the all those the photos world, from the international space and, station are, and he, fo- are phony he is dead serious yeah it's sad that people can be so ignorant in a day of so much information isn't it it is have you ever heard of a guy called lebron james i have okay. basketball right? yes mm. his teammate oh okay is lebron a flat earther as well he says that uh well if, if Kyrie decides that the earth is flat... Then well, it's flat. Well, that's okay. Like, Kyrie, you know, Kyrie's entitled to his opinion. It's, this is the most postmodernist um, basketball player I've heard of in a while. This, this is part of the complex of, um, you know, this idea that seems popular these days, that, that it's, you know, we have a democratic political system, therefore we should have a, a democratic opinion system. <laughs> And everyone's opinion is as good as anyone else's opinion. Well, 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 but, but a democratic, factual, you know, system as well. Like, so That's a bit of a stretch. And just to round it off, there's another NBA basketballer, Draymond Green, who said, I need to do more research, but I might be persuaded to side with Irving. Oh. <laughs> Goodness me. That is sad, isn't it? What, have the, what has the world come to? But, you know, that could be a reflection on the US uh, education system, which is apparently dire. I mean, and, and getting worse with the, you know, the Trump appointment of that uh, evangelical Christian mm-hmm. who has probably never set foot in a, a public school in her life. And she's apparently uh, has an agenda to gut the public school system mm. and privatise it as much as possible and you know give out vouchers to people to go to whatever school they choose and probably encouraging uh, more religious schools, Christian-run schools, predominantly in the US. Mm. And you know I know American friends of mine are deeply worried about this. Mm. She's in favour of the charter system. And is that what it yeah. is? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so that's all very dangerous, but incredible that that uh, three high-profile high basketballers could come out with a theory that... Uh, Look, I've never... Mm-hmm. 
put much store in <laughs> the scientific uh, knowledge of uh, sports people. No, but gee, that the earth is flat? Yeah, Goodness that's, me. That's pretty incredible. Mm. Right. Um, we have on this podcast, Paul, over the time, discovered some, uh, some real characters who have got valuable things to say. Top of the list so far would be Ken and Malik, I reckon, mm. for you and I as a yeah, favourite. Yeah. Uh, we quite like Lionel Shriver. She yeah. was good value. Uh, recent times, I like Gad Sad. Indeed. And uh, we may have discovered a new fellow here in Clay Routledge. Routledge, Routledge. I'm not sure how the Americans pronounce it, but mm. he is an American. Mm. So you came across an article in Quillette. And uh, Clay Routledge is a social psychologist and professor of psychology at North Dakota State University. Tenured professor there. And he wrote an article that had some good stuff in it. Paul, what were the highlights for you? Oh, for me, the highlights were that he he said that the social sciences of, of the last few decades have sadly neglected what is to him an, an obvious link, and that is the link to biology. Now, I recall, Trevor, when I was doing my undergraduate degree, I, I had an American uh, lecturer who I, I, I very much liked, but I recall getting hints from her and, and probably from one or two others that biological determinism was absolute anathema in the social sciences. You know, this concept that we can attribute mm. anything in human behavior to our biology. Mm. Whereas Clay, to his great uh, credit, I think, has said, well, we're mad to ignore our biology. We are, after all, um, carbon-based life forms, and surely that's a factor, and, mm. and we can't ignore, or we ignore it at our peril. Some people would say that your gender is just a, a social construct. Some right? people do say that. Yes. Quite a lot of people oh, these good. days. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, uh, so yes, he had that to say. Um, look, he had a, a sort of a couple of different parts to the article. Um, I liked, at the beginning, he talked about um, that we need to perceive life as meaningful in order to be healthy and happy. Without a meaningful life, that was difficult. And the meaning that we look for is some sort of enduring meaning mm. um, because we know our lives are finite. So um, that meaning could be religion. It could be a lasting work of art or cultural contribution we might make. It could be a scientific contribution we might make or it might be having children to pass on our, our DNA and ethics and yeah. all the rest of it. And these are the sort of enduring things that we look for and he said that um this is very interesting that the world is becoming less religious when you look at statistics of you know, religiosity and its importance in people's lives and whether they're attending church etc and you might think dear listener that that's because we're becoming more rational and he said that studies are showing that that while religion is down there's a number of what you might call irrational beliefs mm. that are on the rise mm. and are replacing religion. So there are more people than ever believing in the supernatural, the spiritual, uh, conspiracy theories, yeah. ghosts, UFOs, and 
extraterrestrial intelligence and perhaps you know put the flat earth and um that we've just talked about with these basketballers that that was interesting wasn't it the extraterrestrial intelligence Mm. part where he said uh it, it would appear that more people who who are who consider themselves rational thinkers are more inclined to believe in the existence of extraterrestrial life correct if you're using that side of your brain as a rational thinker um, if you've abandoned religion or you don't have religion, you're quite likely to have a belief in in that sort of. I know uh, I believe in. Yeah, no, yes. I'm just kidding, but I, uh, I certainly believe in the possibility. Possibility, yes. Yeah. Um, I think when he's talking about irrational, he might be talking about them having active involvement in our world at the moment. That's right. Yes. Um, as as meddling in our affairs and things like that. A, a kind of yeah. conspiracy theory. Yeah, yes, sense, yeah. that sort of thing. And he said that people who use empathy or intuitive thinking, if they move away from religion, they might well go to more spiritual mm. beliefs. So um, spiritual. Um, yeah, whereas the rational thinkers would head towards that extraterrestrial uh, sort of thinking. And he said that's uh, ETIs, as he called them, are secular gods. Yes, that was an interesting... Uh, it was interesting. I think to yeah. say, wasn't so, it? So when we see statistics on religiosity going down, we need to examine whether um, some of this woo-woo stuff in, is going up. In your personal life, Trevor, have, mm. have, have you detected any sort of uh, increased belief in sort of new age so-called spirituality? I mean, I see it. I work in the education field, as you know, mm. and I, you know, teachers are on the whole a pretty well-educated bunch, but they're also a very mixed bunch in terms of their personalities and their and their interests. And you know, I do I do come across teachers who probably would not claim to believe in God as such, but who believe in energy or some extra, you know, inexplicable force in the universe. I'd say yes, but my problem is. When I try and nail them down on exactly what they mean, it all becomes... Uh, very fuzzy? Very fuzzy. Yeah. So it's hard to get a grip of what... And people are, are quite poor, usually, mm. in enunciating what they are yes. thinking, other than they're kind of hopeful that there might be yeah. some other power. But it, it could be very well linked to what mm. he's talking about, that we, mm. we crave meaning in, mm. in our lives. And mm. I absolutely agree with mm. him. Mm. I think you do too. Mm. Yeah, I do. It's very interesting what he said about that. Mm. Um, well, one of the reasons, you know, having got into this whole secular movement and the podcast, Paul... Is, Gives us it, meaning. It does. It does. It really does. Yes. Yeah. I like to think of it as being, hopefully, educating people and younger people in particular. And, and you know, it's the start of something that might develop. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, then he, he moves on to identity politics and he says uh, the really good point that with identity politics, it's dividing people into groups. It's a divisive movement. And we know that as soon as you divide people into groups, you have in-group bias. Yeah. I think there's been studies done, Paul, where they put people in a room and they whack a red or a blue sticker on them. And people just tend to congregate the red stickers amongst the red and the blue amongst the blue and and they start developing in-group tendencies and start being suspicious of the other group without anything else being said to them. Yeah, this has been, as he pointed out, this has been known for quite some time. Hmm. And and yet the identity politics people, 
would have us think that encouraging this kind of uh, splitting off into smaller and smaller groups is somehow productive or good for us mm. and is going to build a more cohesive society. Mm. When psychologists have known for a long time, it does exactly the opposite. Yeah. So he makes very good points there. And he says the key to helping members of disadvantaged groups is to focus on what unites people, not what divides them. How true. Um, he also says victimhood feelings are contagious. Mm. Research shows that if group A is accused of victimising group B, then group A perceive themselves as victims. Mm. Yeah, it becomes a, a competition of victimhood. Mm. Uh, yes, indeed. Mm. And he also has a good crack at postmodernism and, uh, you know, that there is no universal truth because of personal bias. And he says that in the academic world, normally academics then are very rigorous in their testing and their data gathering to take the subjective bias out of yeah. Uh, what it is that they're examining, whereas the postmodernists don't care and just give an opinion, accepting the personal bias. It, it and... used to be the case that mm. if you were developing an academic theory, you were looking for something that could be extrapolated over any yes. given group of people. Yes. And yet they're going, as he points out, in exactly the opposite direction, yes. away from universality, Mm. to specificity if you like you know mm. and but but of what use is it yes. of what use is it in in theorizing about people or human behavior yes. if every individual person is their own little world and their own little study you can't possibly do a study on every individual human and make it meaningful exactly yeah so he said all that beautifully in this he article really in lots of different ways so yes. Recommend that to people. Um, uh, and the other thing, yeah, just the whole idea of academic peer review. Like, I mean, if you... I've never written an academic paper for peer review, but it's... Uh, you know, I've got relatives who have, and I've read enough about it. It's a rigorous process. Should and be. your opinions are put up for examination, and people will go through with a fine-tooth comb trying to find errors in your thinking. And that's the strength of the system. As yes. we know, it's like the scientific method. Yes. If it doesn't hold up to scrutiny by anybody in you know, controlled laboratory conditions, mm. then it's of little use to anybody. But in the world of identity politics, we it's can't do opposite. that. We can't examine people no. and their opinions. You're just oppressing them if you do that, Paul. Yes, and everybody's subjective experience is, um, is valid, apparently. Mm. Mm. So that's Clay. I think we'll be reading more from him in the future. Mm. Another great article from the Boston Review. And um, this one is titled, Is Multiculturalism Bad for Women? Mm. And it's talking about the situation of what do we do when there's a clash between gender equality and claims of minority cultures or religions. Um, So, uh, this Susan Oaken says that uh, defenders of multiculturalism would say equal rights for individuals will not 
necessarily protect minority cultures. And these minority cultures are vital to enable members to have a meaningful life. Therefore, minority cultures must be protected from extinction by giving them special rights. And the sort of special rights we give are that they can govern themselves or be exempt from general laws. So this, this is the theory of the defenders of multiculturalism, is that an individual cannot have a meaningful life without their culture being vibrant mm. and rights that protect individuals don't protect these mm. cultures and therefore special culture rights have to be enforced. Mm. And she says that the exception when that won't happen would be when there's an admission that within that minority group it's illiberal, that members are forced to conform and have no freedoms within that group. At, at that point you would say, well, we don't, uh, we're not going to allow this special group right. Mm. So putting this all into an example, Paul, would be something like... Um, Oh, what was I thinking of? I was just writing about it before. Um, in terms of uh, divorce laws in the UK in Sharia courts, for example. Mm. So, uh, well, this is my own example. I don't think she used it. But, for example, in the UK, uh, there are special laws for the Muslim population to have their divorce proceedings dealt with according to... Uh, the Islamic legal. faith in Sharia courts. And they're legally recognised, aren't Yes. So that's... What about the, division of assets? Does it, is it also governed by Sharia? I, I don't know to what extent it is, but there's certainly some aspects mm. are that just don't apply to the rest of the population. Mm. So there's a special law granted to a minority group to protect the existence of the culture because the culture is vital to the meaningful life of the individuals. And the argument of the advocates of that would be that the members of the culture are more than happy to agree to that. And this article makes the point that advocates in that situation are making two mistakes. One is they're assuming that, um, that everybody thinks the same and they're also ignoring the private sphere that's going on behind closed doors mm. in these communities mm. that um, that uh, in many cultures the strict control of women uh, is enforced by actual or symbolic fathers with complicity of older women yes and because it's done in private in a highly oh, implicit rather than explicit way, Paul. It goes under the radar, doesn't yes. it? Yes, and they go, well, you know, there is consent to all this amongst the yeah. members of the community, yeah. but that's not truly the case. And people yeah. turn a blind eye to that. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the issue about women wearing uh, head coverings yes. in public, um, I, I suppose some people might assume that the more women you see wearing head coverings the more they believe that's what the women want to do voluntarily. 
Mm. Whereas, as we know, that is not necessarily the case. It could be more successful, the cultural pressure has been... That's right. ...from an oppressive patriarchal society. And particularly in areas where there's a concentration of people of the same religion or ethnic group, mm. there seems to be this sort of um, reinforcement of yeah. these customs because yeah. people don't want to be seen as rebelling against the culture or they don't want to incur the... Uh, disdain or alienation that they might suffer from other members of their community. And, and I mean, it's a pretty ugly thing, this sort of slut-shaming that's going on. Mm. So it's a pretty nasty allegation to make Mm. against a cultural group to say, you know what, the older women in your community and the men are guilty of slut-shaming the women of your, the younger women of your community. And... Does it also not subvert the law? Because I, I was under the impression that British law, like Australian law, was was basically there to pre- protect each individual member. I mean, we can't abuse our children because our children as individuals are protected by the law. Well, this is the whole point of this article, Paul, is the theory of the multiculturalists is that culture is so vital to the meaningful life of these people. I mean, you, as a privileged white man, have no idea of the importance of culture. Sorry, I'm no longer calling myself a white man, Trevor. I have colour. Look, now I'll prove it to you. That page is white. Look at my skin. Is it white? No, not good enough. I'm a coloured man from now on, Trevor, to you and to everybody. Not good enough. In the oppression Olympics... You've scored very poorly. But the point that she makes, of course, is that, you know, uh, culture is trumping individual rights. Mm. And that goes against virtually everything in our Mm. Enlightenment-based liberal culture, Mm. where it's the rights of the individual to to be what they want to be, to live as they want to live, you know, within reason. Yes. You know, that they don't harm others. Yes. And uh, this multiculturalism, the way it's been sold to the public, mm. says that individual rights are fine for the mainstream people. But if you happen to be unfortunate enough to, to have been born in a minority ethnic group, mm. your individual rights don't count anymore. Mm. You have to conform to the expectations of the you know, uh, purported leaders of that group. Mm. And they're usually men. Mm. And they're usually, as we know recently, they're usually men who have some sort of uh, religious power or religious authority. Mm. And uh, the rights of particularly individual women have just been steamrolled. Mm. Haven't they? I believe so. Yeah, on many occasions, yes. It's sad because, you know, we're, we're saying, yeah, individual rights for the rest of us, mm. but for those women in that minority ethnic group, mm. their individual rights don't count anymore. They have... And it, it's, you know, we've talked about this obviously before, but it's the idea that people cannot change, that they're, they're locked into a particular stereotype. Mm. You know, I mean... We get the people who rail against the, you know, the privileged patriarchy that we're obviously a member members of, and and they talk about there should be more diversity. You know, these people should have the freedom to be what they are, and yet they're not given the freedom to be what they are. They're actually locked in yes. to a stereotype constructed for them 
Yes. And they, they don't have the freedom to be what they are or to grow or to evolve. I mean, let's provided face it. Provided it's within the boundaries of the culture. Exactly. That's, that's but been... human society is a story of change, mm. of almost constant change, hasn't it? Mm. Hasn't it been? And, and yet these people are told, sorry, you cannot change. That's your ethnic group and you're expected to behave accordingly. Mm. Mm. What's that about? Mm. Power. Power, control, and a mixed-up ethical system of, of of these people who it's it's who are you know from the outside who are supporting these systems in a in a mixed-up moral yeah. mumble jumble yeah. I think. Yeah. And we know Ken and Malik has pointed out that um, this has become worse since governments in Western countries in a in an attempt to try and, um, if you like, keep the lid on ethnic tension, Mm. they decided that the way to avoid ethnic conflict was to give money to the uh, self-elected or self-appointed leaders of minority ethnic groups Mm. and hope that they would uh, sort of settle down and be happy because Mm. they're getting money and power and influence now. Mm. But the exact opposite has happened, hasn't Mm. it? Like people who have listened to this podcast since the first day, <laughs> my sympathies to you. Um, when we, you know, when we start on religion, the, uh, and the and they're probably wondering why are we into this, you know, identity politics and multiculturalism so much when you start off on religion. But the thing that really grinds my gears about religion is is the division that it causes unnecessarily in our community that stops us from progressing harmoniously towards a better civilization. And this goddamn multiculturalism Mm. is on the same level of creating this division that's preventing us from moving on. And, you know, quite often religion features as a key element of the culture, Mm. but not you know, not 100% of it. Ethnic identity has almost mm. become a new religion in a mm. sense, hasn't it? Mm. So, um, so yeah, we've it's it's as big a factor as religion, and it's tied in with religion as as one of those things that's mm. causing us not to move on. Mm. So, um, um, so yeah, so that's why we're focusing on it. But we've probably reached the high point of cultural identity bashing with this episode dear listener so bear with us um so yeah so that's a great article there that will be in the show notes of um of that theory of of feminism coming up a poor second to cultural group rights Mm. uh all because of an unwillingness to look at what's happening genuinely in the private sphere in communities. And an unwillingness for politicians to, you know, make the effort to really understand uh, the the, the social issues Mm. at a deep level, Mm. you know, at a theoretical level. Mm. But all they they want to do, apparently, is uh, keep the voters on side. Mm. So they go with whatever the voters seem to want to Mm. Go with. Mm. Dear listener, not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. 
Did you silently think to yourself, Great, a new podcast. I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. Paul, you and I have been annoyed at different times as well on the on that secular party Facebook page when I was involved and you still are. Uh, and we see it all the time in other comment sections of mm-hmm. social media mm. is, is the virtue signaling that goes on. Mm. And uh, dear listener, this is a great article titled Moral Outrage is Self-Serving, Say Psychologists. And there will be a link in the notes to this. And um, um, I don't, uh, uh, Elizabeth Nolan Brown, I think, is the writer. Anyway, it's a little bit... You've got to get a little few things in your head sort of straight here. So I'll set the scene and then we can talk about it. But uh, they basically had people that they subjected to different little tests. So here's a group that they gave some fake news stories to about climate change. The first group read an article that blamed American consumers for climate change. We'll call them the America Shaming Group. The second group were given an article to read which blamed Chinese consumers. And obviously these were Americans reading this. So uh, so the first group hears that American consumers are to blame. Second, hears that Chinese consumers are to blame. So obviously the Americans are going to have a bit of guilt from having read an article saying Americans are to blame. So having read the article, the groups were then, both groups were then given a, a different article talking about big multinationals and how they're causing environmental damage of of various types and what they then found was they asked people to respond and the America shaming group were highly outraged by the big multinationals whereas the the China group were less outraged Mm -hmm. so the ones who were guilty and who then read an article about big multinationals exhibited a a much higher amount of moral outrage, kind of, I would say, Paul, deflecting or drawing attention from themselves or to make themselves uh, feel better. But certainly they, in expressing their reaction to the article, were far more outraged than the China group, Mm. Um, which, when we're applying that to the sort of comment section of a Uh, Facebook page, you could say, well, the people making the loudest noise of outrage are quite possibly those feeling the most guilt. Yeah, maybe. Hmm. Also, um, here's the other interesting part. So both groups uh, read the article about the big multinationals. One expressed high outrage, one less outrage. Then they got people to assess their guilt levels. And the America Shaming Group, having expressed their outrage, felt less guilt than the China Group. 
at the conclusion of it. So they got it off their chest yeah. about the Americans. They'd, they'd expressed their outrage. So expressing the outrage was a kind of vent to, to, to shed some feelings of guilt. Yes. Interesting. Isn't of their it? own personal guilt. Outrage at the actions of the multinationals then swept away some of the guilt that they felt from the earlier article. They probably went out and went shopping afterwards. <laughs> well, they probably more so than the China group because they had no guilt. They had less guilt. Yeah. Um, and uh, and they also um, their ratings of their moral character improved as well. So uh, so that's self assessment of moral character. Yeah. Mm. So um, so that was interesting. That yeah. um, in summary. The guilty ones were the ones to express most outrage against a third party when offered the opportunity, mm. and having done so, mm. then overall felt less guilty than the, yeah. than the China group. Interesting. Another group in the same study, Paul, um, were given articles about labour exploitation in developing countries. First group were given an article that showed in small ways how you as a Westerner might be responsible for labour exploitation through buying cheap T-shirts, and yeah. etc. Or iPhones or whatever. Yeah. The other group was given an article about Apple and sweatshops and they're mm. not doing the right thing. So obviously the first group, feeling guilty. Mm. Second group, not feeling guilty. Um, uh, then, um, same thing, given a further article about... Uh, other big sweatshop companies, the people who were guilty were the ones who expressed the most outrage uh, than the others. Mm. Um, and, um, yeah, a similar sort of results from it. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Mm. I Look, I, again, go back to Clay Routledge, you know, him mm. saying that really there needs to be more research into the psychological aspects of our behaviour, mm. you know. I mean... If we, if we went back in, in time to when we all lived in little villages, um, probably shame was a very strong force in mm. governing uh, social behaviour. Mm. So, of course, in the mod society we live in now, we're, we're pretty much removed from the village, but perhaps our uh, instinctive reactions to each other are still somehow similar do you think i don't know i don't know how to equate it to the village and the wider society that we live in the sort of village less society that we're in now um uh you know gossip is another thing you know people uh, generally look upon what we refer to as gossip very negatively these days and yet if you went back to you know a long time ago when people did live in villages gossip was communication gossip was how people maintained security in a village where you know they knew who was coming who was going you know what i mean mm. so something that used to be very uh, functional and had a utilitarian value mm. has now in the modern setting in the modern context become less useful and for some people just a nuisance or an annoyance you know but mm. maybe we've 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 still got certain responses, social responses uh, that are still with us from more simple times. And maybe this...
So, Paul, just um, the village. When we're talking about uh, what's going on on social media and the sort of outrage people are expressing in response to things going on, what was the village equivalent of social media outrage? And potentially... You know, was it, you know, moral transgressions that were happening in the village, people would would be outraged and 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 turn people into outcasts if they had, um, I don't know, slept with the wrong person or, or hadn't gone to church or something like mm-hmm. that. And maybe in those days, the people expressing the most outrage over moral transgressions were perhaps the ones who were the most guilty at the time. We have, a, I think, a, a fairly good um, analogue for that in the contemporary world with religious leaders, don't we? And uh, we've seen stories over the last few years of religious leaders in the United States, at least, and, and to some degree in Australia, who've been found to be uh, transgressing the same, the same uh, sins if I can put it that way, as the people that they very loudly criticise. Mm. Do, you, do you remember seeing that program with uh, Richard Dawkins, where he, you know, it was a program about religion. He, he travelled to the United States and he, he interviewed a leader of, of quite a, a large evangelical church. And this guy, right in Richard Dawkins' face, told him how arrogant he was. Mm. And some months later, there was a story in the media about this guy uh, soliciting male prostitutes. Right, yes. See, I, I always thought that that was just deflecting attention away from your own failings. But according to this sort of study, as well as deflecting attention, it, it is also effectively um, assuaging the guilt that people might be feeling. So taking outrage or... Being outraged against others mm. actually makes you feel good, yeah. as well as by reducing guilt, as well as deflecting attention away mm. from you. Yeah. So, don't know. Uh, it's a, it's a it's a tough one, isn't it? Because mm. I, when I'm thinking of this study, ah, oh, well, let's be brave here. You know, I I think of the uh, immigration issue, and I I just think of people on social media who are just outraged that Australia is the most despicable country in the world for not uh, doing, you know, for not allowing as many immigrants in as want to come in. Mm. And people are so vehement about this. And there's something about it that just doesn't make sense to me. Are they alleviating their so-called white guilt about being born in a a very fortunate um, country? And I, maybe I just don't feel that guilt. Like, I feel lucky mm. to be in this country, but I don't feel guilty. I don't either. Maybe no. the people who are feeling that way have got feelings of yeah. guilt. Yeah. As much as, more so than the luck that I feel or you feel. Mm. Yeah. yeah, like you, I feel extremely fortunate to have been born here. And, you know, even though my family had work, you know, of quite humble means growing mm. up, I still feel extremely fortunate. And even more fortunate that I was able to get a good education and be able to explore these issues with with you, mm. Trevor. Um, but yeah, it's. Mm. I think, as I was saying to you on another occasion, that I think it's part of this uh, 
complex of ideas that have been constructed by the left to make us feel as if all the ills in the world are somehow our fault. Mm, maybe that's something in there. Yeah, that uh, let's we get a chance to blame identity politics again for we something. Could, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And and in a way, I mean, we we owe it to the rest of the world to bring them here. Yes. Because after all, we caused all their misery. Yes. So if you don't accept that theory, you don't feel guilty. Uh, you just feel lucky. Yeah. 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 So maybe if you don't express some, you know, publicly mm. some some guilt, then mm. you you're part of the privileged patriarchy. Yes. You? Or you just don't accept that that uh, that narrative uh, that wants to impose guilt onto mm. you. Maybe. Yeah. Hmm. It's a powerful weapon that they use against us too, isn't it? It's a powerful tool for persuading people across to their way of thinking, do you mm. think? Hmm. Yeah. Well, according to this study, if you want uh, to have people, you know, advocating loudly for a cause, then make them feel guilty about something, mm. uh, anything, in fact. And, and, yeah. and in order to assuage that guilt, yeah. off they'll go and have a good rant and feel better about it afterwards. Yeah. Did you get around to watching that program on SBS about racism in Australia? No, no, I didn't. But that, perhaps I'd be feeling guilty if fine, I had. Fine time, Trevor, because right. it was it was a lesson in self-flagellation. Well, you know, it was in terms of its uh, scientific validity, it was appallingly badly done. Um, just anecdotal stuff was it, it was it was a sample of about five people right. supposedly representing the different shades of racism in Australia right. and our our dear friend Abdel Magid Miss Abdel Magid oh, she was on it as well oh, she was the, the compare oh, okay. she, was, she was running the experiment oh goodness and you know displaying suitable looks on her face of Oh dear, he's going to say something really racist now. This white guy, you know. Right. It was. It was so. Okay, I'll have to now. Now that now, now that Abdul Majid was on it, it was so transparently shallow. Right. If I can put it that way. Right. Um, but it was, you know, it was it was formulaic too because. It had a happy ending, Trevor, and you'll oh. be you'll be happy to know that the I hate happy endings. The, the member of the white patriarchy at the end of the program very warmly embraced all the non so called non white people in the right. group right. and told them how much he loved them right. and how much he'd learnt and how much he'd changed <laughs> on his during, journey. <laughs> during the during the journey with these people. And they all congratulated him on his conversion to, right. to the to back to humanity, if you like. Right. And they all shared food and wine and um, embraced each other. And sang Kumbaya around a campfire. It was like that. Right. It was like that, but Mm. Tried and and you know the listener. I hope the listener has watched it as well because, you know, I can imagine people who, as we were saying before, have not had the benefit of of acquiring some decent critical thinking skills in their education. I can imagine people watching that uncritically, and saying, "Gee, Jasmine is right." You know, mm. um, we we should try to be more like the 
the the coloured people of the world because mm. they're naturally more empathetic than us white people. Mm. And, uh, you know, we can be much better people if we are more like them and more like Jasmine, of course. Mm. It was a... Uh, interesting on so many levels okay i'll I'll put that on the to-do list uh one item i wanted to quickly mention before uh wrapping up paul i went to a meeting of the queensland parents for secular state schools what a great bunch they are beavering away at trying to change the system Mm -hmm. and uh really interesting stories as these ladies were telling their war stories of dealing with PNCs and deputies and principals and um, and how they were just continually knocking their heads against brick walls to get systems changed. Um, so obviously, dear listener, with religious instruction classes in Queensland, parental consent is required. Children are supposed to then be offered something suitable in as an alternative to religious instruction. So... Issues where kids were ending up in religious instruction classes despite no consent. Kids being shuffled off into broom closets to twiddle their thumbs and be bored. Um, Women who had battled for years to get the systems changed in their school and a new deputy or principal comes along and everything that they'd fought for disappears overnight and they're back to square one again. And... um, also, interesting story by a lady who was battling, you know, as to why is the PNC spending all this extra money on extra time for the school chaplain? Um, because obviously the school gets funding for certain hours of a school chaplain, and then often the PNCs provide extra money so that the chaplain can work more days. This happens very regularly, Paul. And she was, you know, at PNC meetings and saying, well, the chaplain is present at the meeting and saying, I don't feel comfortable with the chaplain here. He mm. should not be in this meeting yeah. that we're discussing yeah. his or her pay yeah. and having to battle to have chaplains removed from meetings where this is being discussed. So so anyway, um, I'm hopeful that we'll do some recordings with some of these ladies down the track. And, um, and the chaplains. Little... Well, yeah. <laughs> Why not? Yes. Why not? You always got to get the other side. Yes. There you go. There's a commitment. There's a commitment. Because there's a chaplain in my squash club, so I could definitely interview him. I used to work with one. I used to share a staff room with a school chaplain. Yep. So, So that's something I'd like to do. So, dear listener, if you have a bad experience or a war story where... Uh, your child has been put into a broom closet or ended up in an RI lesson um, when he or she wasn't supposed to and has come back praising the Lord Jesus and you've, you know, over the dinner table and you're shocked, get in contact because I'd like to record some audio and sort of put it all together in some fashion. So that's a project I'm working on, Paul. Mm. Sounds like a very um, worthy project. Mm, Very good. All right, dear listener, well, that's it for this episode. Uh, I promise you that's enough on identity politics for a while. We'll just get on to some other stuff over the next few weeks and give it a rest for a while, having got it off my chest. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Bye for now. See ya.
Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.